You're listening to ASI, Attitudes of Sexual Integrity, Season 4. This is Episode 18. My name is Russ Shaw. ASI247.org is the website. Kicking it off with some more Zach Brown Band. If you have listened to this podcast for any length of time, you realize that I am not impressed with religious professionals. And while I do love the church and have a passion for Jesus' bride, the church, um, the religious administrators and the people that keep the thing running, while I appreciate them, I struggle to trust them. In my younger days and in my shady ways of doing business, there was a thing called street credibility. It's a realization. It's like a feeling that you know in your knower. Like you don't have to be convinced. You just go, okay, this, this person gets it. They know what they're talking about. They've been through it. That's street credibility. I'm gonna share with you today a guy who just from this message, Dr. Matt Russell from fullerinstitute.org is where I gleaned today's intentional purposeful audio. And this man has that divine experience, that street credibility, whatever you want to call it. A guy I respect after hearing this message because he's looked the demon of shame in the face, the demon that locks people up in a junkyard, the demon that has this insidious nature to keep us in a prison of our own making. And I I respect him for that. And I wanted to share with you his story. Again, the Zach Brown band, that song is called Junkyard. And it reminds me, it speaks to me of, you know, the element of shame and how we feel, a lot of us feel like we're somewhere in, in God's junkyard, maybe, right? Like I, I felt like that. Some of the ways we work out our, our thought life theologically, um, I was chatting with a dude on NoFap Christians. We were talking about, you know, people get saved, right? There's that, I got saved feeling. And then, and then we try and explain it. We try and put it in a box, right? We try and theologically or, you know, in our thought life, intellectually, we, we try and, you know, well, we want to explain it. It's like, we want to share it. We want to, um, here's, here's what happened, right? Here's, we, we were trying to explain it to ourselves a lot of times, I think, right? 
Hey, here's what happened in my soul. Here's what happened in my heart. And it's really like trying to explain a piece of music sort of, right? Like I could tell you about how the notes and the timing and the instruments that were used and here's why this music is good. But does that explain why it's good? No, it doesn't. You wouldn't get it if I told you, you know, if I laid the sheet music out before you and I told you the octaves in, in Zach Brown's voice. You'd be like, who cares? I don't I get it. I don't understand. I don't know if I care, right? But when you experience it for yourself, when you see it for yourself, when you realize that God really does love save and in Jesus being the son right God on a rescue mission to love and save human beings to walk among us to tell us that he loves us to love us with a with a love and a reconciliation and a forgiveness that says forgive them father for they don't know what they do we we get that in our heart and it changes everything um this guy I'm sharing with you today, uh, Matt Russell, is a professor at Fuller Seminary, uh, Fuller Institute for Recovery Ministries they have going on. I love that they do this at Fuller. Um, my friend Tom Ryan shared this with me, this page, and this is the first talk I listened to. And I'm like, oh my God, I got to get permission from the college to put this up. And I did get permission from uh, Dale, the director down there. And I'm so grateful that I get to share this with you because it was such a great um, talk by uh, Matt Russell. I wanted to thank my friend uh, Tom Ryan, or T.C. Ryan. He wrote the book Ashamed No More, A Pastor's Guide Through Sexual Addiction. He's been a, a guest on this podcast before. Uh, Dale Ryan, uh, no relation, is the director of Fuller's Theological Seminary, and his story is up there as well, and it's powerful, too. Um, it's about 10 minutes long. He, he talks about his own, his own story, his own faith journey, and uh, again, uh, fullerinstitute.org, if you want to check that out. These guys give me hope, man. I tell you what, it's like you hear the stories, and the churches that fall and the news articles, right, that come out and you hear guys talking about this, you hear guys that teach on recovery, you hear folks who have this real life walk of faith and, you know, they're just not faking it. And, I, and that gives me a lot of hope, man, I tell you what. So without any further delay, uh, the other side of this little jingle bumper here. You're going to hear from Dr. Matt Russell at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. One of the folks that came and spoke at Mercy Street when I was there was a, a gentleman by the name of Brennan Manning. I don't know if you know who he is. Um, he's fantastic. He, he's written a number of books. He was a recovering alcoholic himself. Um, I remember him speaking at Mercy Street and him speaking about the love of God in such a way that even uh, five years into my own sobriety um, and um, I had been a Christian, I think I was probably conceived in the parking lot of a church. I've always been a Christian, right? I mean, I've just always had been a church and never not known um, um, about God. 
Um, but he spoke about the love of God that does not separate, that always brings together, that will go to any length to, um, to redeem, to love, to reconnect us. Uh, he spoke of it in terms that um, I remember when I got into the car that night and taking him back to the hotel room, I began to weep. Uh, I wept like, uh, like, a little, like a little kid, I wept. And I asked him, I said, Brennan, um, I, I preach it. I believe the grace of God. When, do, when does it get inside of me? Like you speak of it, like it's inside of you. And he said, um, Matt, how old are you? And I said, I'm 34. I was 34 at the time. I'm 35 now. Um, okay. um, I said, I'm 34. And he did this little Brennan Manning chuckle. And he said, oh, I, I didn't get it when I was 34 either. And that's all he said. Because I didn't know at that time that there um, is um, such a mindset and such a some, some people would say a spirit, uh, a way of being shaped by shame, that we uh, need to be confronted with an alternative reality that is so different from shame for that to really have an effect on our lives. And 34 years of marinating in shame um, and having a conversion experience and having a couple years of, uh, of sobriety under my belt was not near long enough to counterbalance some of those um, those voices that were in my head. Um, and so um, tonight, partly what I want to talk about is that we live in a culture that um, I believe that um, that is it does it marinates in it. Reservoirs of shame live within us. It's uh, I, I watch even the way that um, um, that we we raise our children, that we are we speak to our kids, that we speak to ourselves. Right? Um, there's friends that I have that uh, said that if I was as hard on on um, other people as I am on myself, I'd be in the county jail right now, <laughs> right? And, and there's a sense in which that that's true, that many of us have these ongoing tapes in our brains that uh, keep us in line through uh, um, kind of negative, uh, uh, negative sequences. Um, when I got out of seminary at Fuller, um, as I had said, I was, uh, I was full in my addiction. And uh, really my addiction uh, and my spirituality were um, complementary, complementary um, uh, friendships in that I really suffered from what I call now um, um, spiritual bulimia, that I would, um, I, would, I would be involved in my addiction in such a way and feel shame about it, and I'd run back to the spiritual side and I'd kind of throw it all up um, um, on Jesus. Uh, and I had, I was kind of a, a high bottom. I could, I, could, I could fake it really well. But underneath my life were these addictive processes. Um, moved to Houston. I um, was asked by the senior pastor of the church that I worked at at the time what I wanted to do. And um, I told him that I would like to create a church for people that hated church. Uh, one of the things that I had learned about at Fuller um, through a gentleman by the name of Ray Anderson was um, who began to really kind of crack the uh, shell of shame over my life and culture um, was that possibly, just possibly, there's a God that loves us so deeply that he would descend into hell. And so that hell is not even a God forsaken place now. Uh, that was an absolute um, epiphany to me. Uh, 
that there's a God um, who took on our transgressions, who took on uh, um, in the Psalms, in the Lament Psalms, um, how long, oh God, how long? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were taken on the very lips of, of Jesus. And so um, it's, it stands in the very core of our tradition that uh, the Jesus, who's uh, the God whose face is Jesus, descends into hell. Um, and so that hell is not a God-forsaken place. And so that when people walk into churches, there should be a sense of not um, uh, of being liberated from that hell of being able as pastors to speak into um, what a poet calls a quiet desperation of our humanity, that each of us walk around with a quiet desperation, and that as pastors, if we don't speak into that in some, some degree, um, that uh, we're involved in um, what's been called spiritual malpractice, that where the antidote is worse than actually um, um, the disease itself. So when people come into our churches with this quiet desperation of shame or abuse or fear or anxiety or depression, and what we give them is really Pollyanna statements that are, con that are connected to conceptual realities that really have no bearing our, on our embodied experiences, if that makes sense, then what we do is we offer them a mirage. And people will go after that mirage for so long until they look up and it's like the uh, emperor who has no clothes. They think, this isn't working, right? Um, I don't know how many practical agnostics sit in our pews um, um, around the country. Folks that um, will say the creed, but deep, deep down there is this kind of sense that God is not connected to them at any level. That their experience of God is disconnected. Um, um, that um, that they they go to church in a way to kind of um, um, build up this kind of repertoire of trying to be connected to God. But when the lights get turned out and they're alone, there's a pervasive sense of loneliness and despair and shame. I think the church, to be the church, has to offer um, antidotes to that. And I think that there's a creative ways that are deeply embedded within our theological traditions that not only um, expect us to do this, that it requires us. So I was talking tonight, and the phrase was spoken out um, called a, a crisis of imagination. I think it's what we have happening within our own culture is a deep crisis of imagination about what um, we can do and are possible of doing, what kind of communities we can set up, um, what people need, um, how people are released from, um, um, from shame. One of the things that shame does is, um, is it begins to isolate us and fracture us from ourselves. And so there's a deep fracturing um, um, in, into uh, different parts of ourselves. There's a, um, a gentleman, um, a theorist by the name of Hermas, who says that, that there's not a person inside of you. Erickson, Freud, Jung, Kohlberg all say that there's a person inside of you um, when you're born. What, what, um, uh, what Hermas would say is that we, there's not a person. That person is collectively kind of created via the relationships that, um, that, 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 that we are born into and are uh, imprinted with and, and are given into. So that if I'm involved in a relationship uh, with Greg, um, um, he begins to establish an I statement inside of me. And I, my identity is formed by my friendships. So primary relationships 
relationships early on, mother-child. If there is a primary relationship where that child begins to pick up in imperceptible ways, because shame is a word um, that describes an experience that has no words, right? So we use this word as a vehicle to describe a primary, um, really what, what William James calls ineffable, an ineffable, unspeakable experience. Um, and it happens in this differentiation process when I feel different, not as an individual, but I feel other than in a shamed sense. I'm not as good as. I might not be loved as much as, right? Um, and um, one of the things that Hermas says is that these, these voices somehow become uh, to make up our identity. And that if shame has a primary organizing factor in your life, and it has a factor, organizing factor, not just in individuals, but in cultures and in churches and in groups, right? Um, but as it has a primary organizing factor in a person's life, um, it shapes their primary identity. And so um, I have a, a sense that we are surrounded and that we are um, shaped deeply by shame uh, in, in different ways. Um, one of the things I'd like to talk about tonight is um, um, Mercy Street, a, a church that I helped plant in Houston, Texas, that began to think about if we were to do this differently, what would it look like? If we were to become a, um, a community that could really be an antidote, uh, that, that could live out of our deep Christological sense of who we are, but could do it differently, what would that look like? Um, and so when I got to Houston, one of the things that I did was um, I asked the pastor of the church if I could uh, talk to folks that had left the church, that were mad and, and had left the church. And so I began to or organize and to interview people that had left the church in a coffee shop named Diedrich's Cafe. And so for um, nine months, I interviewed folks that weren't in church. And I asked them just a couple of different uh, questions. Why did you leave? Um, if you could do it differently, what would you have done? If you were in charge, what would it look like? Um, um, all these different kind of questions. And over about nine months, I interviewed 65 people. Um, it was in that process that I met um, some recovering addicts that had left the church. I kind of had adopted um, the idea of church, um, maybe the motto of church internally at least, was we've got it, you need it, how about it? You know, And that was kind of evangelism 101. Um, but um, as I began to interview these folks who had left the church, most of them had a deep and vital spirituality. And it shocked me because I thought, well, the church has that. You don't have that, right? Which was totally crazy based on just my understanding of, of what the Holy Spirit does in pneumatology. If the Spirit of God's poured out on all flesh then it's all flesh, right? Then, then what Stephen Verney says, the uh, um, a theologian in England says that the name of God can be translated in the Old Testament as something is happening, right? It's not this static, I am what I am. It's something is happening. It's very dynamic. And so where we see reconciliation, where we see things that are coming back together that have been disparate, where we see people's um, both internal and external and cultural healing happening, that's the happening of God in that place. And so as Christians, uh, partly what I believe that we're supposed to do is to then participate in the happening of God in our world. 
one of the things that I began to realize um, um, in these interviews is that people had a deep and vital um, spiritual connection that wasn't connected to uh, to a church. Um, and so after about 65 interviews, um, um, I hosted a dinner at a lady's house and um, I said, this is what I've learned and um, I appreciate you being here and, uh, and, and being gathered around. If you want to do something about this, then come back next week and, um, and we'll talk more about it. Next week, we had about 63 people that had showed up at this lady's house. And uh, two-thirds of those folks that I had been interviewing were not Christians at all, had left the church. Um, in the midst of that, I had interviewed a, a gentleman, um, and he began to tell me his story. And um, although our the data was a lot different, um, I began to cry. And he said, and he had a really deep kind of gravelly voice. His name is John. He said, uh, why are you crying? And we were in this kind of public restaurant. I'm not a pretty crier, by the way, either. You know, I'm, I'm crying and beginning to kind of, and he's like, well, why don't we go sit in my car? So we went and sat in his car and he said again, why are you crying? I said, well, you know, my, our stories are different, but I am connecting deeply with a lot of the um, stuff you're talking about. And he said an, ex, an expletive. Um, he said, oh, crud. And, uh, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I think I need to take you to a meeting. And I'm like, a meeting? I I'm a pastor, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so that began my journey um, in sobriety. And I began to see um, how much even my own preaching, um, how much my own idea of church how much my own um, spiritual life had been formed and shaped by shame. And it wasn't until I did my fifth step um, where I sat across from my sponsor. And um, again, it was another public space and another me crying a lot. It was, um, if you ever have to do a, a fifth step with somebody, don't do it in a public space. It's just a tip. You know, so I'm, I'm at Whole Foods in Houston, um, at the restaurant and I'm sharing with him my, my fearless moral inventory. And I began to see, um, and feel what I have been carrying around for over 30 years of my life. Would I have laid down at the altar a thousand times? Would I have thrown up on the feet of Jesus a billion times? Was absolutely powerless over. Was absolutely my life was unmanageable. Um, I had come to seminary thinking I could get distance on it. I had um, I had been prayed for a hundred times. I had listened to every worship album, get my hands on, thinking if I could just get close enough to Jesus, all this crud would go away. And it wasn't into the to the rooms of recovery where I was sitting across from someone else that began to tell me my own story back to me in a different way, in a different socioeconomic, in a different ethnic background, that I began to see how much shame that I had ingested. Um, and so I began to go to meetings, um, and um, and out of that we planted uh, this church called Mercy Street. And uh, with these 65, um, I would say two-thirds of them were addicts. Not all of them were addicts, but two-thirds of them were addicts. And one of the things that we um, we began to 
talk about um, very conclusively and very deeply is that we wanted to create a space. One of the one of the addicts said to me, Matt, why is it so easy for me to go to my AA meeting or my SAA meeting or my NA meeting or my Al-Anon meeting and I can stand up and I can say, hi, my name is John and I'm a sex addict or I'm an alcoholic, but I would never, ever do that in a Sunday school class, right? In fact, I really want to put on a different face in Sunday school class so when people ask me, how you doing? I go, I'm doing good. How you doing? You know, so we kind of get in that little exchange with each other. And he said, I didn't realize. He said, I quit going to church because I couldn't be honest. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, when a real sinner shows up in church, people get shocked, right? Because we all have got the mask kind of tightened down so far down on our faces that it's really difficult to then be, um, to be honest with each other. And the only antidote to shame, and this is counterintuitive, is vulnerability, right? The only antidote to shame is, is vulnerability, it's not spirituality. It's not prayer. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about prayer. Why is it so easy? And this is what I learned in my fourth and fifth step. Why is it so easy for me to go to Dale Ryan, who is at least as screwed up as I am, if not more, those of you who know him. <laughs> and, uh, why is it so difficult, rather, is what, what uh, Bonhoeffer says, to go to, to, to Dale and to speak out my truth about what I have done. Why is it so easy for me to go into a prayer closet to this holy God that we conceptualize as holy that could wipe us out with one kind of little touch of the smite button, right? Why is it so easy for me to go to a holy God in my prayer closet? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says because it's the other that constitutes the real presence of Jesus. And I'm actually avoiding God in the prayer closet. And that if I want community, and if I want to be reconnected to community, because what shame does to us is it disintegrates us, takes us out of a connective self and connection with each other, and that the other then constitutes the real presence of Jesus. So where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, right? That's not the constitution of a church. So wherever that happens, and there is someone that becomes vulnerable, the real presence of Jesus, even as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, hidden in the incognito, even not named, the very presence of Jesus is there to liberate. So here I am in an AA meeting where nobody, there's, there's folks that, um, that I began to realize could not say the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus had really created a barrier to the person of Jesus. Does that make sense? The name of Jesus had been used as a weapon, as a threat, as a place that if you don't receive some kind of conceptual idea, you go to hell. It had been, it had been used as a billy club. It had been used in all manners of ways. And so the very name of Jesus had become a barrier to the person of Jesus, who doesn't do any of that, right? Who, who meets the woman at the well, talks with her, meets the woman caught in an adultery. This is what Ray Anderson says, and steps across all of the lines that the men had drawn. And I learned at, the, at, at, at Fuller Theological Seminary, um, in one of Ray's classes, when he said that any time you draw a line in the sand, and you say, all of the good Christians, all of the good people on this side of the line, you will always leave Jesus on the wrong side of the line. 
Jesus will always be found on the wrong side of the line because he will not forsake the world that he loves for a set of conceptual statements, right? And so we have people that come into our churches into uh, all the time that have buried deep within them experiences of disintegration. And when we offer them platitudes, but we keep them at arm's distance, we are actually part of the problem, not part of the solution. We're actually at that point, not the church of Jesus, I believe. We're creating actual barriers to the person of Jesus. We are not, uh, not church in the worst sense of that word. <laughs> and so I think that one of the things we need to regain and reclaim is this deep sense of vulnerability within our own uh, spaces and churches. This is one of the works uh, that Brene Brown talks about. Those of you who have, have seen the billion hits on, on uh, the TED Talk that she's done, a researcher who does research on shame in Houston, actually. Um, she said this, that most people go to church for an epidural against the pain. But what church needs to be, she says, is a labor room where somebody next to you is saying, push, push, right? Most of us go to church because we don't want to feel the pain. A church ought to be a laboratory, ought to be a, as, at least as honest as a 12-step meeting where somebody can show up and say, my name is and... This is what I've done. And there not be a drawing back of, but there be an entering into a process of what we as Wesleyans call sanctification that takes an entire lifetime. And it takes an entire lifetime of deep honesty and deep vulnerability. And if we are so program driven where we're never offering people space, a vulnerability of stepping in and having those, um, then we may be a good 501c3, but we're not actually the, the kingdom of God is not breaking into that place, right? Um, can I tell a story that you told me, Dale? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Dale told me a story one time that there's a woman that came to his church. I maybe embellished this, so don't, don't correct me, okay? This is my story now. <laughs> 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 yeah, I've told it three times, so this is my story now. A woman came to his church when he was uh, a pastor um, um, for a couple times, brought her kids, loved the, the children's ministry, loved his preaching. Of course, she loved his preaching. Um, loved the church, came a couple times. She was lingering in the back of the sanctuary um, and uh, waiting for all the folks to go and um, met up with Dale and said, um, I have a question. Um, where do people go? Where did people go in your church to get this way? Because um, I'm not this way, but I want to get this way. But but I, I can't I can't be here. Where did people go to get here? That's where I need to go. And after I get here, I'd like to come back, right? And so sometimes we can act as if we've got all of our stuff together in the church, right? Um, we've had these conversion experiences and that um, we've left it all behind rather than this deep kind of sense of our own personal struggles that we will always continue to have, right? We'll always continue to have. That the church ought to be one of the most vulnerable places on the, it should be, I think, the most vulnerable places on the planet. 
what we said at Mercy Street, it ought to be the safest place to make the most dangerous decisions of your life. Decisions to get sober, decisions to reconnect, decisions to make restitutions, decisions to, um, um, to do your fifth, fourth and fifth step, to make your amends. And so partly um, when we were creating Mercy Street, let me just tell you a bit about the process of, of that um, um, so I can talk about some of the nuts and bolts of creating um, these kind of shame-free zones. Is one, there are no rule books, right? If you're looking for Zondervan to crank out some kind of you know, shame-free zone in a box for $19.99, don't buy it if they do, right? Because one of the things that we have to do is, is that uh, part of what Mercy Street was birthed out of was my own process and Greg will tell you that Mercy Street is burst out of his own process, right? That it really is a place where you have to do your own work and it's a continual work to be done. And so um, partly um, out of my own recovery, um, we began to kind of meet and meet other folks in recovery. And then other folks that weren't in recovery began to say, we need a place like this. So one of the things that happens in 12-step um, in, in, in meetings is that people tell the truth. So we began to think, what would that look like in a church setting where we would open up space for non-creepy sharing, what I call, you know, kind of non, because you can get into creepy sharing in church, right? Um, in AA or in NA or in the other A's, they usually cut you off. They're not as nice as they are, in, or maybe they're just not as tolerant in some good ways as they are in the church. But we wanted to have a space where you could share. We wanted to have a space where um, doubt and faith were fused, Right? That doubt and faith were not antithetical uh, to each other, right? But that they were, um, they were really in a sibling relationship. And there were movements that we will make all throughout our life. This is one of the things I began to wonder. Um, um, there was a Jewish guy named Jerry that came to Mercy Street. And he said, I want to join the church. And I said, um, Jerry, you're a Jew. And he said... Thanks, preacher boy. I know that. You know, thanks for pointing out the obvious. Um, he said, but something's happening here. Stephen Verney, something's happening. Something's happening here that I can't explain. Um, and I want to come. And all you say as a Methodist that I have to, to do is to um, support this place with my prayers, my presence, my gifts, and my service. And I said, well, there's this whole Jesus deal too, right? You know, and he said, well, I've got a lot of questions about that guy. And, you know, honestly, I do too. <laughs> so I said, what if you did this? What if you ask your questions and you come along with us? Um, Stephen Polanyi, or Michael Polanyi, a philosopher, says this, that, um, that our believing at its source is conditioned upon our belonging. Let me say that again. Our believing at its source is conditioned upon our belonging. In the Enlightenment, what we did in church is we said, what do you believe? And I'll tell you if you belong. You say these right things, you say these creedal things and tell me that you believe them, you can belong. Shame says you don't belong. We've had these like, very deep agogic experiences of not belonging. The church ought to be a place that belonging always precedes believing, right? Belonging always precedes believing. Um, we adopted two of our sons from Guatemala. My sons um, know that I love them. I mean, I would, I would run through a wall for either of them. I mean, I'm in head over heels in love with my sons. For instance, my son Miguel 
does not know that I love him because I've hung his adoption decree over his bed. Right? There's a piece of paper. Shouldn't that be enough? It says I love you. Just believe that. No. He knows that I love him because at four months old, the first time I ever held him um, was really a dream that my mother had before she died. She said, Matt, you're going to have a, a son. Um, and so as I held, I forgot about the dream that my mom told me when I was 15. I, I was like, I hope it's not soon, mom, you know, so, <laughs> kind of creepy mom. Can it, yeah. So um, I'm holding this little boy in Guatemala City, this little brown boy, the son of my heart. And I begin to weep, realizing that this is the dream my mom had. And so I, I love this boy. He belongs to me. I belong to him. When we moved to England, he has an anxiety disorder similar to the one that I have. He wouldn't go to school for three days. And so I began to walk him to school and I would tell him the story of Jesus calming the uh, waters when he was uh, asleep on the boat. And so we would walk the length of this lane, turn the corner, and I'd tell, I'd embellish the story all the way to the gate of the school. And the first day, and he walked in, the next day, we're walking to school, and he said, Dad, tell me the story. I said, what story? He said, about Jesus in the boat. Every day for eight months, I told that story. And every day he asked me, right? He belongs to me. We have these rituals together. We um, know our body language imperceptibly, right? So the church ought to be a place where we don't ask people what they believe until they belong. Because people come to believe, right? We say this in the 12 steps. It's a second step, coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. There was a time in my life I could not get sober. And I'm a pastor of a church, could not get sober. I go to my, um, my sponsor. He says to me, Matt, you have a problem with the second step. And I said, Kevin, again, I'm a pastor. I'm a pro at the second step. I got the second step down. That's not my problem. He said, you've got a problem with sex step. And he was right. Because a power greater than myself is really a power of shame that had been kind of deified into a, a grand deity that if I was good, it was good. If I wasn't, it wasn't. And it was the programs of uh, the recovery movement that connected me to a God that, um, uh, of love that um, Jesus was, that Jesus is, right? And so there is not these lines that we ask people to cross. So one of the things that we did at Mercy Street is that we said that um, belonging precedes believing. So you can be a member here, but you got to ask your Jesus questions. you got to ask your Jesus questions. But you can join our church, and we'll take you through a ritual of joining. You belong to us, right? If you get sick, we're going to visit you. If you die, we're going to do your funeral. If you get married, I'm going to officiate of that. If the wheels fall off of your life, our community is going to be there. You belong to us, right? And it's in the belonging to each other that the very presence of Jesus is real. The presence of God's love and healing. The presence of reconciliation. The presence that reconnects all those things that are disconnected. It's in the belonging.
And so as we belong to each other, that's where the shame gets dealt with. This is where these imperceptible and sometimes unconscious behaviors begin to be dealt with, is in these relationships of vulnerability. And so one of the things that we did is that uh, folks would, uh, would join um, and that baptism became the place where we would ask, who do you say that I am, right? I mean, there's, there's biblical precedence for this. Jesus invited his disciples and said, come and see. It wasn't three years into his uh, earthly ministry that he asked Peter, who do you say that I am, right? But that's a, that's a question we ask first. Who do you say Jesus is? And I'll tell you if you belong, right? What, what if the church was, come and see, come and see, come with us, come alongside of us. We're working programs too. We're trying to be as vulnerable as, um, as we can be here. We're working out our faith with fear and trembling. We don't have all the right answers. There's times that I do doubt. There's times that there's a time that I stood over my mother's bed as she was wrought with cancer. And I, I, I absolutely did not believe in God. And there's still a part of me that holds on to that disbelief. So my disbelief and my belief have now become sibling partners and brothers. They're not in war with each other. They stand in the same place in discussion inside of me, right? This is what Jesus says by making friends with your enemies along your way. And so the way that we make friends in a sense with shame is that we become vulnerable with each other and say the things that we can't say. Because if we don't, it's like a wolf down in a basement that begins to ravage us, right? Our shame says we can't say it. You can't say this. You can't speak this. Because if you speak this, you will disappear. You'll become annihilated, right? But it's, it's in the very relationships that constitute the very body, the very love of Jesus, where we say these things. And I had to learn this in the 12 Steps. Where we say these things that shame is dealt with. And so that's the part of the process, that, or at least the part of the, the dynamics that I, I believe that, um, that our churches have to be rooted in, have to be involved in. It is so very true. It's a great message there by Dr. Matt Russell, Fuller Theological Seminary. Reminded me of the story that Jesus tells one of the Pharisees, and, and we've heard it so many times, this born-again um, metaphor or analogy. It's almost cliche in American evangelical culture. You need to be born again. That's what you got to do, right? And we, we hear that, and it's like, uh, what, is, what do you... So uh, Jesus tells the story of a religious dude who comes to see him um, the Bible records uh, at night, right, during the cover of darkness, which, you know, is kind of like, okay, this is a little shady. Like he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus or meeting with Jesus, but he's thirsty for answers, right? So he, he comes to Jesus and Jesus says, um, you know, he's like, how do I get it, right? Like, how do I, what, what is it going to take for the switch to be flipped, uh, and Jesus simply tells him, um, you need to be born again. And he says, what? Like, do I have to crawl up inside my mom? And be, What are you talking about? And <laughs> had me thinking about the film Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, I love that film. There's a character in the film who, who's so 
hardened and tough. And he doesn't get metaphor, right? Like, that's part of his character. He doesn't understand metaphors, which is, is interesting. <laughs> and it's like, he's like that guy, right? Jesus talking with this religious professional, this Pharisee, and telling him, man, you, you need to be born again. That's, that's what it is. And that metaphor, for me, is really part of, you know, the conversion story that happens in the heart um, born again it's just it's building that ever it's not a switch that's flipped it's a relationship that is ignited you know where we submit to God where we put our life before him and say man I, I don't get everything but I, I want to know you I love you and I, I need right save me love me Jesus I, I accept your gift and that's part of this that people are God's love for us is great it is huge and people really are important and a treasure to God the Father and man this talk gives me hope that churches would realize and create more safe places and sacred spaces where we can be ourselves and talk about the deep hurt that come up in our identity that muddy up who we are and we can be open amongst other people in that very sensitive sacred space that we can know our great worth before King Jesus as brothers and sisters in the faith big part of why recovery groups and Bible studies and community groups fall apart is because we think really high thoughts of our own authority and we think small thoughts of God's authority and what he thinks of us and how he values us. We are, we are infinitely loved. We are worth the greatest sacrifice that was made on the cross. The, the ultimate gift from God is because he delights in us, in you as an individual, loves you, and that's true. And I uh, wanted to leave you with the rest of this bumper by that same song uh, from the Zach Brown Band. ASI247.org is the website. My email address, russ at asi 247.org if you want to email me um, if you want to hear any of the music that I play on the show or buy the music you can do that on the website uh, just click on the music tab and it's all it's all right there um, just think about this right who are you down deep you you are a good creation there is good in you there is redemptive material and God reaches through time and space to build that ever important relationship and I just pray that if this stuff is making sense that you take some time to just be quiet and talk to him right lay your life before him and even if you don't know what that means quite yet just say you know I don't get it but I feel this love stir in my heart and I here I am, Lord, you know, take, take me, take my life, use me, um, because you already are loved 
and you already are very lovely, despite what the voice of shame may be speaking to you daily. You're lovely. Your worth is infinite. You, you, you're loved by the creator of the universe. There's a star burning 12 million light years away that God created, and he knows you. It is mind-blowing to think of our worth to the artist who hung the stars in the cosmos. I had a dark figure in my past, an individual who would tell me how dirty and how sick I was. Um, I had a, a step-parent who would remind me when I got, you know, dirty, like as little boys do, playing around, that would tell me how filthy I was. This person would remind me, you're filthy, right? Um, my worth as a little boy, you know, was broken down. And now at 47, finally realizing who I am, right? Uh, the last 10 years, wakening up to who God built me to be and not believing the lies of the... Um, the shame monster and I, and I pray that for you too that that you would realize who you are I just think there's a lot of us who are going to walk into the gates of heaven and God's gonna be there Jesus with his arms open and, and he's gonna like kneel down to us like we're little kids and he's gonna grab some of us by the nose and go you little rascal you right loves us despite our our failures and our faults he knit us together in that pure part of our personality that he made uniquely you it, it, it's worth beyond measure who you are in the kingdom of heaven so pray for me pray for this ministry and i'll be praying for you like the Lord's Prayer says, that you would realize your worth and your health in the kingdom of heaven, that you would know in your knower who you are in the midst of your mighty king, the lover of your soul, and the one that knows you intimately, that you knit you together and man, your gifts, your talents, your uniqueness that is you. I'm going to be praying on earth as it is in heaven. You know your value. Till next time, bye. I'm not sick, I am lovely. Hatred is the curse of me.